0: Asked ball Show. Brought to you by JohnPLE.com. Oh.
1: What the f you think is my opinion of it? I think it was f-
2: f- put that in. I don't f- so the tribe drops its third straight on this trip, six to one to the Rangers, For the Indians, one run on, let's say. One hit. That's all we've got. One goddamn hit.
1: Don't
0: worry, nobody's listening anyway. I'm talking about the past, I'm talking about the history, I'm talking about what's great about this game, the baseball. There's so much stuff to talk about. I would say I would know, but
1: I would say the reason why they want to pass is baseball going into the highest
0: baseball sport that it's gone into baseball and from the baseball angle. I'm not going to speak of any other sport. Let me start by telling you this, I have never used steroids, period. Jerry?
1: Remember, it's not a lie. if You believe Joe Carter with a three run homer.
0: The winners and
1: still world champions, the Toronto Blue Jays. And this team sucks. Well, hey, man, he's, he's, out. Out. he's out. Yes, sir. is out. out. Look, look at this. Brett is out. And Damon back. I'm not here to argue about other sports. I'm in the baseball business. This can run cleaner than any baseball business.
0: Ever put out in the 100 years of the present time. Sell the team. Oh, yeah. Welcome back. John Piele, Pass Ball Show, TR Radio Network. Of course, we're hitting up hour two of the radio program. And as, as always, thank you guys for listening. Remember, tweet at me at John underscore Piele. I'll reply to you. Um, we're getting into a little bit of baseball history now. If you look back the anniversary, and obviously, if you go on baseballreference.com, you, they always have this day in baseball history kind of reminds you of the stuff that happened on certain days in regards to the history of Major League Baseball. You know, 365 days a year, there's always an event, there's always something that you kind of get into and be able to kind of reminisce on if you're a baseball fan and, you know, a historian like myself. But, you know, Disco Demolition Night, you know, you look at really what ends up happening, and that was, you know, one of the more unfortunate events in baseball history, kind of one of two if you really look at it, where you you kind of attracted people that were not baseball fans to the game. And a 34-year anniversary was last week of the infamous Disco Demolition Night in Chicago. Obviously a stunt or maybe a promotion, however you want to look at it, uh, set up by the owner, Bill Veck. And Bill Veck, of course, known for several different things that he did, including having his players wear shorts, batting a midget, um, you know, you look at all these different things that he he did. Um, you know, Satchel Paige. I always always told you was an interesting thing because it, it it could have backfired. It could have embarrassed Satchel Paige. You know, at his age, at forty two, if he was really done, it would have really made him and a lot of the players from the Negro Leagues look bad if Paige went out there and didn't perform. And obviously, he had a lot left, so that ended up not becoming an issue. But in regards to Disco de- Demolition Night. There's really one person to blame for it, and it's not Bill Veck, though he deserves some of the blame. His son, Mike Veck, who is actually the promotions director and in charge of promotions for the Chicago White Sox, ends up a- accepting this idea and ends up uh, following through with it. He ends up, after it becomes such a disaster, he ends up losing his job and is almost blackballed from baseball as he's really not allowed in. The guy who is the most to blame for this disaster of an event is a radio show host in Chicago by the name of Steve Dahl. And this guy was an angry, vengeful, spiteful young man who had just lost his job at a local Chicago radio station. And the reason being is the radio station that he worked for changed format, went from a rock and roll format to the disco format. And if you remember, in the 1970s, around that time, disco was extremely popular, and it was a situation where you looked at it and you said, uh, "You know what? It's time to change with the times." And you saw it happen for many, many, many years. Remember, it's from the invention of radio, you know, you went from different types of music, you know, the doo-wop days to big Bang and swing, and. You know, obviously rock and roll as, a, as it became as powerful as it did. And really, really, you know, in regards to music. And I'm never, I'm never going to, you know, excuse myself or make myself seem like I'm a, I am a music knowledgeable guy. But I, I do know my history of music. But, you know, if you look at rock and roll, rock and roll kind of came into the music industry as probably the strongest out of really any genre of music. And there was a fear, and you heard about it all the time in the late 60s and the 70s, that there would be a day that rock and roll would die. And this obviously ends up in the minds and in the hands and in the head of Steve Dahl, who was a rock and roll DJ in a Chicago radio station, ends up being let go because of the change to the format to disco. And he, he obviously takes this out. He ends up organizing all these events that, honestly... Yeah, you know, we're, we're very we're very negative. They ended up hurting people. There was violence. There was arrest. Uh, there was disturbances. There was disorderly conduct involved. So here's a guy that's not doing good things. I mean, he's organizing these protests and stuff with the interest in hurting people and causing violence and crimes and stuff that leads to arrest. So he's not a good guy to begin with. And the White Sox end up putting Disco Demolition Night in his hands, allowing him to blow up a ridiculous crate of disco records in center field in between games of a doubleheader in in that game, of course, in 1979. And really what ends up happening, and obviously if you followed this or maybe were around that time, you'll see it's one of the bigger disasters of of a baseball game because, you know, really what the hopes were from the White Sox promotion standpoint. And I'm going to play devil's advocate and talk about really what they were intending to do. It was a lost season for the White Sox. They weren't really going anywhere. Attendance had hit an all-time low. You know, you got a stadium that seats probably about 47,000 people in Comiskey Park. We're talking about, you know, Comiskey Park, the obviously most recent stadium. And what ends up happening is that they're hoping that they could take a situation of – where they have about 15,000 people coming into the stands and hopefully, for a single admission doubleheader, move it up to about 20. And that was the honest hope of it. You know, you're trying to just bring in fans, maybe bring in a little bit of 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 a little rush of people that just want to get rid of some disco records. The opposite obviously ends up happening. This becomes a huge thing because you get the rock and roll people. The people are so passionate and do not want rock and roll to die. End up going to this stadium. There's so many records there that the crate fills up so much. And this is where not only the Chicago White Sox, but the police department in Chicago should have stepped it up a little bit. I mean, you see all these people flooding the gates. You know, the place is sold out already. It got 50-something thousand people in there. And yet... You let things go like they, they, they like, like everything everything's okay. Yeah, I'm sure Bill Vex happy because he's getting all these uh, all the, all these uh, ad, admissions. But remember that they have a college a college night set, set up that teenagers are allowed into the ballpark for 98 cents in addition to the disco demolition night. So how much are the White Sox making? Yes, they get to promote a sellout, but it does nothing for them. And obviously, once this game starts and you see all these people acting up. Running onto the field, doing things in the middle of the game, the fact that nothing was done at this point is an absolute joke, and they end up deserving what ends up happening. And obviously, after the 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 igniting of the of of the crate, you you start, you see all the people charging the field, and obviously the spectacle that became of it. And I put it in the blame of Steve Dahl, who, you know, I think is actually funny that he actually offers. To, to, uh, to try to talk the crowd down and the White Sox say, screw you, dude, we don't want anything to do with you. And because you realize that, you know, please from Bill Vec, please from Harry Carey, who ends up going out there trying to sing Take Me Out to the Ball Game. Once Harry Carey goes out to sing Take Me Out to the Ball Game and nobody cares, that's when you know you don't have any baseball fans there. And, uh, you know, it ends up being a terrible job, something that should have been uh, should have been addressed earlier. And, you know, ends up being one of the more gory, uh, not gory, but uh, unfortunate days in the history of Major League Baseball. And, uh, you know, it's unfortunate the way it turned out there. But moving on, uh, you look at a guy who passed away 19 years ago last week at a young age of 54, and that was Cesar Tovar. And Cesar Tovar was a very well-known infielder, outfielder, for the Minnesota Twins in the 60s and the 70s, and he had one you know, impressive feat, which had been done three other times, once before and twice after, uh, having the ability to go out there and play all nine positions over the course of a major league game. And what was impressive about Tovar, a lot of different things that I would love to get into. You know, you look at the fact that this guy actually started the game as a pitcher. And I find that phenomenal, the fact that he went out there as a pitcher and you know threw the first inning. Obviously, you're looking back, and we'll take you back real quick into this day. It, you know, it happened in, uh, I believe, 1968. And here's a guy o- over the course of his career, you know, did, did have some uh, some gray marks. You know, and uh, you know, obviously the gray marks are, you know, leading the league in certain statistics. He did that a lot for the Minnesota Twins over the course of his career. Sacrifice bunts in uh, 1966, G- games played with 164 at-bats. Played appearances in 1967, uh, doubles and triples in 1970, hits in 1971, caught stealing in 1971, hit by pitches in 1972. So here's a guy that's consistently up in the leaderboard for a lot of different categories, a well-known player in the history of the Minnesota Twins, and ends up you know, doing, doing this thing where he, he decides, he gets together with his manager, uh, Cal Ermer, and Cal Ermer was on his way out, A struggling Minnesota Twins team. You know, he probably knew that he was going to be done after the season. He, I don't know if he was told at that point, but you know, I think the writing was on the wall that he wouldn't be returning to the team for the 1969 season. They end up hiring Billy Martin. Martin, one of the great jobs that he does. He goes in there, he wins the division in 1969 with the Minnesota Twins, and then gets fired, but sets that team up to where they're successful and at least competitive for a good part of the early uh, 1970s. But that being said. September 22nd, 1968, Twins home against the Oakland Athletics. Both teams were out of a race, the A's as well. Uh, the Tigers are, were ready to go play in the World Series. Obviously, what's interesting about 1968 is the fact that that was the last year where you had whole league play. They go to divisional play in 1969, and you end up in a situation where obviously there's two divisions, there's more chance to make the playoffs. The Tigers were well on their way to winning the division, so there wasn't much of a pennant race going on. So, both teams not going anywhere. Tovar was going to play all nine positions over the course of a nine-inning game. Only Burke the, uh the at the time the Kansas City Athletics, uh, had, had done that in the history of the game. The ironic thing, the odd thing, is this game happens to be against the Oakland Athletics, and what happens is Campanaris is the leadoff batter for the Athletics. And Tovar starts out as a pitcher. And I think I, I find this fascinating that they let a guy who had never pitched in a major league game start. And he goes, he pitches the first inning. He ends up uh, He ends up striking out Reggie Jackson. He ends up getting Campanaris out. He walks a guy, and he gets himself out of the inning. And what he ends up doing, he uh, like I said, he retires Campanaris. He, get, he strikes out Reggie Jackson. He walks a guy. He gets out of the inning. The next inning, he goes behind the plate to catch, replacing this who was the starting catcher, Jerry Zimmerman. So Jerry Zimmerman's out of the game. And Tovar is replaced on the mound by Tom Hall. Hall ends up doing a great job, six and a third innings of relief, giving up one unearned run in the game. So the Twins come back up the bat. Center fielder Ted Ulander was pinch hit for by Bruce Look, who was a catcher. Look obviously comes in, takes over a catcher for Tovar. Tovar goes back on the field and plays first base. Starting first baseman Greg Nettles moves to center field. So his next move results with nobody being taken out of the game. Tovar goes to second. Rod Carew, who is the second baseman, moves to shortstop. And the shortstop, Jackie Hernandez, goes over to first base. For the fifth inning, Tovar moves over to shortstop with Carew moving back to second. So that was, that one was easy. You go back to the sixth inning. Tovar goes to third base. Third baseman, Ron Clark, moves to shortstop. Okay. Seventh inning, sees Tovar go to left field from third base with Bob Allison, the left fielder, going to center. And Nettles, who's playing center field for a couple innings, goes to what is his natural position, of course, and that's third base. So Nettles is at third. Allison goes to center, and Tovar is now playing left field. Tovar moves to center field with Allison moving back to left field for the eighth inning. And the ninth inning, he goes, he completes the task, an inning in each position, Moving over to right field for the ninth inning with right fielder Jim Holt moving to left and Allison moving back to center field. No no other players really are, are impacting this. Rick Reese comes up as a pinch hitter. Rich Reese comes up as a pinch hitter for Hernandez. Jackie Hernandez was at first base, stayed in the game at first base. Al Worthington relieves Hall and he pitches the final inning in two thirds for the save with Hall getting the win. Um, Later on, the only other times that it happens in Major League Baseball history, Scott Shelton for the Texas Rangers uh, commits the task, as well as Shane Halter for the Detroit Tigers. Halter does it in a conventional way where it was planned and he was going to play every position and he makes it happen. And what's interesting about Shelton and what I find fascinating about this whole thing is the fact that he didn't enter the game until the bottom of the fourth inning. And over the next six innings, he plays all nine positions. He strikes out Jeff Leifer, the only batter he faced as a pitcher. Obviously, some innings he had to go between certain positions. But what was impressive about that is he didn't even start the game. He played the last six innings of a game and got into every position. Campanaris ends up doing it uh, you know, all, all nine innings and then ends up being taken out of the game as it ends up being a, an extra inning game. And if I'm not mistaken, yeah, the game goes 13 innings, so he, removed for, he was removed for a catcher after the ninth inning. So he had done it. But not in a nine inning game. Obviously, something that he can't control. But Tovar, I thought, was the most impressive because he started a game as a pitcher. And I I really do find that fascinating. Cesar Tovar, of course, uh, passed away 19 years ago last week in an unfortunate situation where, you know, he's a guy that, you know, nobody should go at the age of 54 or younger. And obviously, here's a guy that, you know, died before his time. But moving on into some other things that we do want to jump into. Um, the National League, World War II. We talk about the American League in World War II a lot because Ted Williams and Bob Feller and the, the job that those guys had and the impact that they end up uh, you know, having not only for their country but, of course, for baseball history. And you look at the National League and the way it's get, it sets up between the years of 1942 and 1945. And, of course, the, the, the Cardinals win three straight pennants uh, the Yankees beat them in the World Series. I'm sorry, they win the World Series against the Yankees in 42. The Yankees beat them in 43, and then of course they beat the Boston Red Sox in 44. The Cubs representing the National League, you know, in 1945 as, as the National League pennant winners. The last time that they've won a National League pennant, and how, how many years is that? Well, 68 years since the Cubs have last been in the World Series. But you know, I, I digress now because you look at uh, depleted rosters because by this time, you're, you know, you're full force a World War II, uh, by 43, in a 44, and you know, any, any player that was willing to go out there, whether they were drafted or whether they chose to do it on their own, were very interest, it's interested in being part of the war and supporting their country. That is certainly commendable. What it does for Major League Baseball is obviously leads to a lot of different things. You go for different countries for players. You go through farm system and minor league players that may never have gotten to the majors end up being you know, big factors. One thing that I found very interesting was the return of a lot of older players who were out of the game. Some, some hadn't played baseball in the major leagues since the 1920s and end up coming back and being you know, some, some factors, some not so much. But what was interesting here is you look at a guy like you know, like Jimmy Fox. And Jimmy Fox of, of course is portrayed in a movie A League of Their Own. You know, of course the movie about the you know the women the women's league and you know he you know Tom Hanks plays a character which is based on Jimmy Fox who was a manager in one of those leagues and he ends up sitting out the 1943 season now you know you can make a case that he retired or just gave it gave it up but he was still you know owned by or his rights were owned by the Chicago Cubs he comes back in the 1944 season and, uh, you know, towards the end and ends up coming back over the Phillies in 1945. Not only did he hit okay, 262, eight homers, 38 RBIs, and what would be his last season in the big leagues, but he pitched in nine games, as a, you know, to a two ERA. But, you know you, you know, you look at some conflicting stories of whether he actually retired or simply just took a season off, you know, he's not necessarily a guy to return to the game just because, you know, just because of the war. Remember, you know, he, he was a guy that was older. He had knee problems, probably couldn't pass a physical to, uh, to, to support his country in a war even if he wanted to. But the Cincinnati Reds actually dug deep into their past in 1945. They brought back three former Major League pitchers who were all out of baseball at least through 1938. Guy Bush was 43 years old, hadn't been in the game since 38 for the St. Louis Cardinals after a 16-year career, which saw him win 176 games. He pitched in six games going 0-1, and one, 450 ERA for the Reds in 1945. He also used a guy by the name of Hod Lizenby, who was 46 years old at the time. He last pitched for the 1936 Philadelphia Athletics. Lizenby pitched in 36. His, his action that season was the first since 1932. Clay Touchstone had not pitched in a big league since 1929. So you're talking about 16 years. He had not gotten into a game in 16 years. Last time he pitched for the 28 and 29 Boston Braves. He equaled his totals of, the six, of 16 years earlier with six games for the 45 Reds. Another team that did that was the Brooklyn Dodgers. And they, they had a couple veterans. Babe Herman actually had a very good year for them as a bench player was 42 at the time, had, a, had been out of baseball since 1937. So you're looking at about eight years, 17 games for the Tigers in 1937. He played 12 seasons from 26 to 37, hit 265 with, nine for 34 with a home run for the 45 Dodgers. Clyde Sufork, who was a backup catcher. He would later become the manager for the first two games in the 1947 season while Lero DeRocher was suspended before Bert shot took over, had been out of baseball since 1934. So you're talking 11 years. He played nine seasons for the Reds and Dodgers from 26 to 34. The 43-year-old would hit 294, 15 for 51, in 18 games for the Dodgers. A couple other times that happened, you got the Pittsburgh Pirates bringing back former New York Yankees outfielder Jack Saltgaver. And Saltgaver was 45 at the time, hadn't played since his, he had 11 at-bats for the 1937 Yankees. He actually did a phenomenal job, though. 325 average, 28 for 117, with 10 RBIs for the Pittsburgh Pirates at 45. The Braves brought back a former 20-game winner in 1937, Lou Fett. And Fett was only, was, was only 38, you know, compared to guys that were well into their 40s, but had not pitched in the big league since 1940, a season he split between the Braves and the Dodgers. He pitched in just five games, one star for the Braves. He went 0-2, but a former 20-game winner had come back out of retirement to come back and pitch. The Cubs brought back an outfielder by the name of Johnny Moore, who had twice driven in 90-plus run, runs for the Cubs in 34 and 35. His last appearance was 37. He got into seven games for the Cubs, going one for six. So, an interesting thing about players that came back from, you know, from retirement to try to fill some roster spots just shows how tough of a spot it was in regards to players trying to uh, trying to be able to uh, break through and uh, you know, keep Major League going while the players were away at war. But once again, John Pieli, Passball Show, MTR Radio Network. Reminder, tweet at me, at John underscore Pieli, interactive program, the whole thing. Uh, we're going to take a break right now. We'll be back with a lot more stuff going on after this. Listening to MTR Radio. We have ignition. Strap in. You're about to listen to the hottest sounds
2: on MTR Radio. And You're listening to MTR Radio, a flipping out radio production. And you've got it. Hot, 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 hot. Blaze, in the steel.
1: always covering most current topics today check us out on mtrradio.com
0: we offer packages to advertise on our website and on mtr radio get your name in front of over five and a half million people advertise an mtr today email info at
1: mtrmedia.com for details What's up, everybody? This is James Flippin'. And Joey Baboots. We host a morning show together, and every morning we start up our cars and make the drive up to the studio. And you
0: know, we always see one or two accidents along the way we wanted to make sure our listeners know where to go for the best in car care in South Jersey
1: that's right James Red Rose Body Shop that's Red Rose Body Shop specializes in collision and framework they're the best in South Jersey for paint and body work unibody framework free towing and free estimates
0: so call today 609-927-9454 and check out their website www.redroseautobody.com follow them on Facebook and Twitter
1: Red Rose Body Shop, 2033 Ocean Heights Avenue, Egg Harbor Township, New Jersey, 609-927-9454.
0: Red Rose Body Shop is South Jersey's Collision Specialist.
1: 609-927-9454 or redrosebodyshop.com. Been in an accident? Take your car to the professionals at Red Rose Body Shop.
0: Yeah, welcome back. John Pielli Passball Show, MTR Radio Network. Plenty of things to get into. Still, of course, in regards to the New York Mets, the New York Yankees, Philadelphia Phillies, where these teams are expected to be in the second half of the season, and what it means to the future, of course, of all the organizations. But we're going to start off talking a little bit of Mets here. And, uh, you know, obviously, Ike Davis has continued to struggle since he came up back from AAA Las Vegas. Uh, Josh Satin, who I've mentioned in a couple different shows, has done a pretty good job to this point. He's put up some good numbers. Um, I'm not sold. And if you listen to uh, MTR Evening Drive last week on Thursday, I had Rich Catino on. Rich Catino's is not a big supporter of Satin. And I don't think that Josh Satin is a guy that's going to be a big-time major league player. But like I always like to do, going back in a history of not just the Mets, but the Yankees as well. There's been a number of stories, and you know you could call them one-year wonders, but they've all had different impacts on different teams. And you talk about guys that weren't really predicted to be such stars that came up and gave you that that fire, that excitement, and ended up putting up some really good numbers. And you know I kind of had fun writing this article for Bases Empty Blog. Of course, check it out. You know and if not, uh, definitely on mtrmedia.com/slash Johnpiely. But you know, Josh Satin, I put his start, and obviously through 55 at bats, he was hitting 382, a homer, eight RBIs, nine doubles. He, of course, he replaced Ike Davis. Natta Davis is back. Satin's going to see his time diminish a little bit and may, may get some back, I think, as the second half of the season starts. And if Davis continues to struggle, then I think uh, Terry Collins will be more inclined to play a little more Satin as opposed to Ike Davis. Remember, Lucas Duda is coming back into the fold. Justin Turner is going to be back. I, I know Justin Turner is primarily a bench player, but he could play first base too, which will, will make the place a little crowded and more of a sign that Ike Davis is not going to continue to play if he's not going to hit. But that being said, Josh Satin, very good start. First guy that comes to mind, in my opinion, is Benny Agbayani. Remember Benny Agbayani over the course of the 1999 season. He was a guy that was, was up with the team the prior year, was not really regarded as a prospect at all, but came up through 51 at bats, was hitting 451 in 1999. He you know, was unexpected. He, nobody expected him to be a star, but he still finished the season respectable. Hit 286, 14 homers, 42 RBIs, and was a piece of the Mets postseason teams in both 99 and 2000. Of course, in 2000 in Japan, ends up hitting a grand slam in the second game course, if you're a fan, you remember that. Justin Turner had a story similar to that, I think. Because, uh, you know, obviously in the, in the way of social media and Twitter, fangirls, fanboys, I think people end up going out there over, kind of overemphasizing how good a player is doing based on how good they're going to be. And Justin Turner was a perfect example of that in 2011. Now, remember, he hit 260, four homers, 51 RBIs, and 30 doubles in 117 games after he became the starting second baseman during the season. Nobody thought he was gonna be a star. But he's he's probably become a solid bench player. A guy that you could trust to come off the bench, maybe fill in here and there. But you know, if he's gonna play every day, he's gonna be exposed. He could also fill in a couple of different positions. And if you look at right now, maybe not necessarily the future, but right right now Daniel Murphy is the starting second baseman and he should be. But Justin Turner was an example of that. But you know, you go across town and you see a couple other interesting times, and I, I like I like making these comparisons because Remember a guy for the Yankees, a first baseman by the name of Kevin Moss? Kevin Moss was not expected to come up to the majors. He was probably going to be a September call-up, if anything. And Kevin Moss ends up coming in there, replacing an injured Don Manningly in 1990. You know, Manningly, obviously, was the face of the franchise. His team wasn't really going anywhere, but they were still centered around Manningly. And this guy, Kevin Moss, comes up to replace him. They play him at first base because, for lack of other reasons, there was nobody else to play there. Moss ends up hitting a ridiculous amount of home runs. 79 games, he hits 21. Drives in 41 runs, 254 at-bats, 252 average. Because of that, he got a chance to beat the Yankees full-time DH in 1991, where he struggled. He hit 23 home runs, but in 148 games, while Mattingly, of course, was was the full-time first baseman. He only hit 220, and saw his playing time diminish over the next two seasons. That, coupled with injuries, led to Moss being out of baseball, probably a handful of years later and really not being a factor within a year after that. Another guy that I want to make a comparison to and let let me know how you feel because I got Justin Turner, I got Benny Agbayani, Kevin Moss, all that I'm comparing to Josh Satin here because I think he could be the same type of player. Shane Spencer, another guy. September call up in 1998 with the Yankees. The Yankees were well on their way to 114 victories that year. They brought up this guy named Shane Spencer. Spencer was 26 years old. So here's a guy that was that was kind of being rewarded for having a couple good seasons in the minors. And he ended up going out there hitting 373 with 10 home runs in 67 at bats in just 27 games. He ends he ends up with OPS of 1.321. He earned a spot on the postseason roster and kept up his hitting. He had two home runs in a 1998 ALDS against Texas. However, after that run, he couldn't keep the momentum going. His OPS was never higher than 789 in a single season. And he'd be a decent bench player for the next four seasons. Won another World Series championship. But, you know, to be honest, was just not a big factor. Now, you you know, closing this with Josh Satt, if he becomes a viable bench option for the Mets next season, it could be considered a positive. Bench players don't cost very much, you know, in regards to minor league guys that step up. And if you look at the Mets as a bench, let's take away the thought of everyday position players, who's going to be in the outfield, who's going to be catching, who's going to be at second base or first base, the whole thing. Just look at the Mets bench for a second. It doesn't look too bad. You put Satin with Justin Turner and Jordani Valdespin and maybe a Nguyen on the bench as your four bench players. It doesn't look bad at all. And you know you, you, you work on filling in other spots. But I do think Satin could become a very good bench player, particularly if he hits. I mean, he's a guy that has—he doesn't have ridiculous power, but has the ability to spray the ball around. He has good gap-to-gap power. He could be a good double guy. And I would say over the next couple of years, could become a very valuable asset on a team's bench. And also allow you to go out there and use some of the money that you would spend for a guy for $5 million. You know, let's say a $5 million one-year contract for a guy to be a bench player you're able to hold on to some of that, invest that in starting players that you're looking to do. So I, I find that all interesting. So I'm going to segue that into some New York Yankee talk, because obviously the thought is the Yankees have struggled. Obviously before the all-star break, they end up losing two of three to the Minnesota Twins, a team that they, you know, obviously you didn't expect them to go out there and lose to. So, you know, looking at it from this perspective, where, where are the Yankees at now? Obviously, anybody ever says that they were a seller would probably get punched in the mouth by a New York Yankee fan. But after the All Star break, at the All Star break, they sat at 51 and 44 through 95 games. Six games out in the American League East. Boston Red Sox, eight, 19 games over 500. The Tampa Bay Rays, 14 games over 500. Baltimore Orioles, 10 games over 500. And the Yankees in fourth place at 7 games over 500. Obviously, they're ahead of the Toronto Blue Jays with the Blue Jays chasing. Blue Jays have played better baseball for the last month or so. Uh, obviously, have, have have still have a long way to go if they want to be a factor in regards to the race in the American League East. But let's look at the Yankees for a second. You know, all the talk has been about when are they getting their guys back. But at the trading deadline, what are they? I don't think this team's ever going to go out there and dump players. But I do think that they have a number of players that I'm sure would like they would they would like to see if they could flip for something better. And the problem is that they have little value on the players that are on their roster in regards to trading you hear talk that the rockies may be interested in using phil hughes as a reliever even if they are what are they going to give the yankees back that they're going to be able to use jabba chamberlain possibly to the phillies for michael young do the phillies really view jabba chamberlain as an answer as a middle reliever as a seventh inning guy i don't i don't really know i don't know how much i really believe that i mean if it happens it happens if the Yankees are able to flip these guys and get something for them, I would actually be impressed. To me, Hughes, on the last year of his contract, is not going to net the type of prospect that, if you were the Yankees, you would have hoped that you could end up with. Phil Hughes sits at 4 and 9 in 18 starts, 457 ERA. He, he's going out there, he's making every start. You leave him on pace, he'll make his 32 starts. Ah, listen, I mean, does he, does he win 9, 10 games maybe? Does he give you like a 10 and 16 record or something like that? To me, how much value does that make for a team that would be interested in adding a starting pitcher? Could you talk to Giants in adding him? Could you talk to Dodgers in adding him? I don't know if a team's going to go out there and ask the Yankees for Phil Hughes if they're looking for a starter to win games in July and August and September. And if they were, what are they asking? What are they going to give you back? I, I know, I know, it's easy to live into your your homerism. As a Yankee fan, and I admit, homerism exists with Mets fans and Phillies fans and fans of every team in Major League Baseball. You know, they they all got their homers. But right now we're going to talk about the Yankee homer. And the Yankee homer thinks that you're going to be able to go out there and get a top prospect for Phil Hughes. And if you think that right now, just understand that you're just being a homer. The Yankees, to me, don't really have any type of players that they're going to be able to go out there and get younger. So what does that lead? That leads to the Yankees, who obviously we know about their payroll situation. You know how they're, they, they're kind of free spending this year with the thoughts of being under the $189 million luxury tax threshold for next season. So they will probably be interested in adding a bat. I, obviously, Derek Jeter, his injury, the way he recovers for it. Is he going to be okay after the All-Star break? We'll, we won't know. Is he going to go back on a DL? We don't know. Alex Rodriguez. He's projected to come back. Francisco Cervelli projected to come back. Curtis Granderson projected to come back. So the Yankees will have an influx of useful players. That listen, I don't expect Jeter and A. Rod to be like they were in their absolute prime, but should be an upgrade from a guy, you know, from a guy like David Adams or a guy like Jason Nix or some of the other guys that the Yankees have run out there at third base and shortstop. But that being said, you know, you got to you got to look at, you know, potentially bringing in another bat. Travis Hafner, his average is down to 218. After a very good April, he has given you absolutely nothing. And you talk about Vernon Wells and Lyle Overbay. Overbay has maintained a 250 average and driven in 42 runs. Wells eh, has a couple good days here and there, but obviously has fallen off dramatically from the great start that he had. Now, the Yankees got to do something in regards to trying to add another bat. Do they need a pitch or two? I, I think you may, may be considering it. And the Yankees obviously will be towards the forefront when teams are looking to unload veteran players with just this year left on their contract, expiring contracts, the whole thing, because the Yankees will be willing to take it this year as long as it doesn't uh, you know, result in them having to pay anything next year. So I, I do think the Yankees will be very busy in regards to the trading deadline. I think it's something that really has to be looked into, and I find it fascinating to look at. But CC Sabathia has been struggling, Andy Pettit, has been struggling. They have gotten little else out of anybody in that rotation for the exception of Hiroki Kuroda. So how does that put the Yankees in regards to starting pitching? I think in addition to wanting to maybe go out there and get another starter, it should all but put to rest the thought that Phil Hughes will be traded. I think deep down the Yankees would like to trade him. I mean, in an ideal world they can move him to some team and get something in return with him and just move on from him he's going to be a free agent he's not coming back to the Yankees same thing with Jabba but the Yankees have to fill his rotation spot with somebody I mean Vidal Nuno has made five starts hasn't looked that bad but you really trust him in a pennant race I don't know if I really do Adam Warren's done a good job out of the He's made some starts for the Yankees before do you trust him in a spot like that Yvonne Nova, who's eventually getting his rotation spot back. David Phelps. You know, neither neither guy has really stepped it up this year. So if you're going to take a guy like Phil Hughes, who's entrenched in the rotation and move in a different direction, you better have somebody else that you can plug in there and depend on and hopefully depend on a little more than you do with Phil Hughes. Once again, John Pielli Passball Show, MTR Radio Network. We're going to take another break. Be back to finish up this hour after this. I'm Ron Sulpizi from the MTR Sports Report. Not sure where to eat? Then listen to these reviews. Awesome. Amazing Greek food. Everything is fresh. Great family restaurant in the heart of Ocean City. Katina's is an Ocean City staple. When you've had your fill of pizza, cheesesteaks, and ice cream, head for Katina's. Katina's Gyro Restaurant, 501 East 9th Street, Ocean City, New Jersey, 609 399 5525. Check out their website, KatinasFoods.com. That's KatinasFoods.com. Order their famous Mediterranean dressing, and they'll ship it right to your door. Follow us on Facebook and Twitter, Katina's Greek Restaurant.
2: I'm Karen siaskas zeltman from Italian Hour. When my car needs service, I take it to Jonathan's Complete Car Care. Jonathan's Complete Car Care is the best for auto repairs, tires, diagnostics, and tune-ups. You can depend on Jonathan's for the best service at prices you can afford. Give Jonathan's Complete Car Care a call. 609-601-6460. They work hard to give you the service you need. Jonathan's Complete Car Care works with many vehicles including Mercedes-Benz, BMW, Volvo, Volkswagen, and Audi. Make Jonathan's Complete Car Care the company you keep. 609-601-6460. Call today for a free estimate or visit. Find us on the web at JonathansCompleteCarCare.com and like us on Facebook and find us on Twitter.
0: Yeah, welcome back. John Pialy, Passball Show, MTR Radio Network. Finishing up the program with an interview I recorded with former Major League pitcher Calvin Maduro. And Calvin pitched in the uh, Phillies and the Orioles organization over the course of about four years through his Major League career. Spent some time in the minor leagues as well as independent ball. Also pitched on the uh, you know in the World Baseball Classic as well as uh, you know a couple other things internationally. And now scouts for the Baltimore Orioles out in uh Venezuela so uh you know hope you guys enjoy this spot and right after that we'll finish up the show and get you guys going on so here's my interview with Calvin Maduro that good afternoon it's John Piel. I'm here with former major league pitcher Calvin Maduro Calvin what's going on buddy
1: how you doing John
0: Uh, pretty good man thanks for having a couple minutes today uh you know first let's get into you know what you're doing now with the scouting you know with the Orioles organization and the whole thing
1: yeah right now after um after my playing career, you know, they offered me to become a um, international scout, the Orioles. So, you know, I talked to my wife and all that. Um, I agree, and I became international scout with the Orioles.
0: All right. Now, what does what does that entail? You just uh, you know, are you looking at uh, just players in general? Or are you specified in regards to pitching, since you were a pitcher? Or how, what, what what exactly are your responsibilities?
1: You know, I, I look at all players, and not something specific. It's just whatever player you have, international, I will go and look at them. You know, I was a formal pitcher, you know, and I have an idea. So if a pitcher, a catcher appears, you know, I will sign them also.
0: Now, that sounds very good. Once again, it's John Pieli. I'm here with Calvin Maduro. Now, you came up you know, through the Orioles system. You know, you were, uh, I believe, you were, if I'm not mistaken, you were drafted by them. Tell us a little bit about, you know, coming through with Baltimore and your path towards the major leagues.
1: Well, coming through with Baltimore, I signed with them in 91, and my first season was 92. And I uh, played my first year Golf Gulf Coast. Then I went to uh, Bluefield, West Virginia, and then after that I skipped a league and I went to high A-ball and then to double A and then to Big Leagues. So um I got the Big Leagues once I was like twenty one years old, you know, and in a way coming from Aruba and leaving everything you know behind and coming to the States and, you know, play for your career. It was now I look at it, I mean it was worth it completely, you know, because, you know, I have a career now and I I I appreciate, you know, the guy from the audience who signed me that year. So right now I have what I have.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And I'll tell you, one of the things that was interesting is obviously you were one of the first you know, Aruban players to play in the major leagues. Uh, you know, how do you feel about that and what does that mean to you and where you're from? You
1: know, it's, a, it's an honor because everybody remembered that. You know, you know, if Aruba has the next 20 players in the big leagues, you're always going to be remembered. oh, well, you know, Calvin was the first pitcher in the big leagues. You know, it's, it's pretty cool to be remembered like that. And I'm pretty sure Aruba's going to have some more big league players pretty soon.
0: Yeah, no question about it. And I'll tell you, I'm sure that a lot of, there's a lot of kids in Aruba to kind of look up to you and say, listen, you know, this guy, this guy made it to the major leagues. Maybe, you know, if, if I'm that talented and, I'm, you know, I get discovered, maybe I can make the trip as well.
1: Yeah, most of the guy right now, um, the Boston Red Sox, the first, um, the number one prospect, Sander Bogart. He's from Aruba, really, and he's he's having a great season right now with um with Triple A with the Pawtucket, you know, and hopefully we can see him pretty soon in the big leagues.
0: Yeah, no question about it. Of course, Sander Bogart's a very highly regarded prospect, and. You know, as far as a shortstop, he's a guy that hits for some power, and really could be the the whole package. So he's he's certainly a guy that's very very on the peripheries of getting a chance to make it to the major leagues. Now, you know, Calvin, as you, you know, as you came up, you obviously you know you end up making your debut with the Phillies at age 21, like you mentioned before. A couple of years there, and then you end up going back to Baltimore first. Tell us a little bit about your time in Philadelphia, those first couple of years. You know, when you're when you're 21 and 22 years old.
1: Well, when I got traded to Philadelphia, you know, I'm, I'm pretty happy going, you know, from Orioles straight to Big Leagues the Phillies, you know. And the only thing about getting traded is, like, when you go over, you don't know anybody. So everybody you knew, you know, all your career playing, you know, you just left behind. all sudden you don't see them anymore, you know. And it's it, it was kind of, I mean... Right now, I'm, I'm older, look at it, I'm like, you know, it was a good thing because for my career it was good, but back then I'm like, wow, you know, I don't know anybody. So you kind of, like, you know, you got to put like, you got to close your back in the shell so you're not very sure where you're at. And, you know, over the years, I kind of know how to deal with it. And, you know, I, I was good after that, but first when I got traded, it was kind of a little hard.
0: Yeah, no, I'm sure. I'm sure it was. You know, you being up there, and obviously, you know, you, you kind of you went right from the minor leagues in the Orioles system to the majors and the Phil. You know, in, you know, you know, with the Phillies, that, that that must that must have been like, yeah, I'm sure it's something that you were anticipating, you were kind of waiting on, but but at the same time, it was kind of a you know, it was kind of a jump. Yeah, it, it was.
1: It was because, like I said, you you don't know none of those guys, and all of a sudden, you know, you you. You have to pretty much know everybody because that's your new family. It's like going from your family and they just take you apart to another family and try to, you know, make it your family in as quick as possible so you can feel better.
0: Yeah, no question about it. Once again, this is John Pielmeier, former Major League pitcher Calvin Maduro. Now, you know, you end up having a chance to uh, pitch a couple seasons with the Orioles, 2000, 2001, 2002. Uh, I, w- I would say probably your best season was probably 2001 where, you know, you you spent some time as a reliever and as a starter. Uh, what, what in your mind worked out the best for that season for you, for the 2001 Orioles? Well,
1: 2001, I mean, it began the season, you know, I was relieving and I was doing a good job and it put me as a um, starter. And I really, I think everything kind of think that year, you know, as, become a starter, and the only thing, I finished the year really strong as a starter, then 2002 came along, and I got hurt in spring training, and never was the same again, but 2001 was, you know, was a good season, because I finally, I finally got to the point that, you know, I'm starting a start in the big leagues, and I can be successful, but injury, you know, just, you not let it happen. But everything happens
0: for a reason, man. Yeah, no question. And I tell you, you end up uh, you end up going to the independent leagues in two thousand three. You struggled a little bit with the with the Newark Bears. Tell us a little bit about you know that year, and you know I, I'm I'm sure it was a tough go about for you.
1: Yeah, you uh, just um, probably like a um, week ago I was talking about that. I end up signing to go to Newark Bears. At uh, Bears, I think I won one game and lost. Something like that, and I really struggled. But throughout the struggling, I kind of learned a lot about myself too. You know, about you know, you're not in professional ball; you organized ball. You're in an independent ball. So, you know, you gotta. You, you still have. You still got to pitch. You, you know, everything don't come easy to you. So, you know, doing that I learned a lot and at the year after that I didn't play in the in the states because there was a rule about about you have to have a permit visa before a certain date. So I didn't have one. So I ended up skipping the whole 2004 season and 2005 I finally end up signing with the Yankees and I played with them.
0: Yeah, and I tell you, in between, you end up uh, being part of the baseball World Cup for the uh, for the, for the Dutch team. Uh, tell us a little bit about that experience. It looks like you pitched pretty well, and yeah, you know, I'm sure you know. I'm sure it was something you probably enjoyed doing. Yeah,
1: you know, always in 2004, um, the Dutch manager Robert Anhorn called me and said, "You know what? You know, do you want to pitch for um, the Holland team in, in the Olympics?" I'm like, you know, I would love to, but right now my arm because I had surgery in 2002 and it wasn't it wasn't getting better. It was 2003, I struggled with my arm. 2004, it was still kind of weak. And he said, you know, just come over. You know, we rehab you and you will pitch over the weekend. I was like, you know, I talked to my wife. She's like, yeah, you know, that'd be a nice thing to do. So I went over, and I remember going over. My velocity was maybe 81 to 84 tops. And by the first game against Greece in the Olympics, I was 90-93. So, you know, it ended up being a good thing going over rehabbing and throwing some games also.
0: Yeah, no question about it. I'll tell you, you know, it's, it's, it's definitely interesting. Of course, you end up getting uh, knighted by the Queen there, which I'm sure had to be a great moment for you as well.
1: Oh, that was that an was outstanding moment, just getting knighted with uh, fellow um, teammates, Eugene King and... In the City Parson, and, and you know and that was that was awesome. That was something, you know. I, I mean, that's something to remember. It was awesome.
0: And then you end up playing playing for uh, you know in the, in the World Baseball Classic. Tell us, uh, you know, tell us a little bit about that experience and what you felt, you know, about playing, you know, in the WBC as opposed to playing other different ways professionally. In the WBC,
1: 2000, I think was 2006. You know, and it was the first WBC in in Puerto Rico. You know, I played winter ball that before that, and I got hurt in winning ball, and I still ended up wanting to go into the class, the world baseball Classic, but it wasn't the way I wanted it to be. You know, my arm was was not that good. So, but you know, I experienced that, and this year I did the same thing with um, Team Holland's.
0: Yeah, now I, now as you move forward, you've obviously transitioned to what you're doing in scouting. Uh, you know, I'm sure I'm sure you you still probably miss pitching, right?
1: You know, actually, I do, I do. But the only thing I miss about pitching is it being com- competitive. But you know, going every day on the field and do that, I really don't miss that. I think 18 years of playing, it w- wasn't enough for me.
0: Yeah, listen, I'll tell you, yeah, you had, you had a good uh, good run at it. And, you know, listen, I wish you the best of luck with everything you're doing with the scouting. And hopefully we could stay in touch and I can speak to you sometime again soon.
1: Anytime, Joe. Anytime you want, just give me a call and we can talk about baseball, you know. And
0: So there it was the interview with Calvin Maduro, a great guy, and obviously wish him all the best in everything he's doing with scouting. In Venezuela for the Baltimore Orioles organization. But finishing up just last two minutes, a little recap of the All Star game. Of course, we know the American League ends their a little bit of a losing streak with a three three nothing win over the National League. Mariano Rivera the games MVP. Um, no real objection there. The situation where nobody really stood out. Mike Trout a lead off double, and then of course Matt Harvey hitting Robinson Cano of the Yankees and listen if you're a Yankee fan you're gonna be like hey everybody's throwing at the Yankees and you know listen stop it already I mean if anybody's gonna throw at anybody intentionally at an all-star game come on you know get over that already I think that's friggin insane but uh, pitching dominating as, as it has over the last several seasons. Of course, last year, Justin Verlander had a little bit of a problem, but really other than that, the pitching has been good in the All-Star games over the last couple seasons, and the offense has kind of taken sec- uh, you know secondary to what's happened with the pitching. And let's be honest, we're in another pitching era. You look at the starters, particularly the guys in the National League, even guys in the American League, a lot of guys going out there, throwing zeros, getting a lot of strikeouts. And uh, the low ERAs, the low whips, something that, you know, has certainly become a big deal in Major League Baseball. You know, the good teams are really uh, building themselves based off of pitching. And i tell you, it's a, you know, it's a new generation. We're getting where the, the ball is dying down a little bit for the exception of guys like Miguel Cabrera and Chris Davis. You, you know, you're not really seeing the, uh, the 50 home run power anymore. And it's really become a pitcher's driven league. And you saw that in the All-Star game. Um, you know, in regards to uh, home field advantage, listen, I don't think anybody really agrees that home field advantage should be determined by what happens in the All Star game. But listen, for right now, it's something we, we essentially just got to deal with. But listen, I want to thank everybody for being part of the show. Certainly, thanks to Benny Ayala. Great job. Calvin Maduro. And obviously, we'll get ready for next week: Passball Show and TR Radio Network. Goodbye.